20th Century Fox wants you to go ape. Now, the triumphant return of a revolution in the art of science fiction filmmaking, the classic Saga of the Apes. Two great civilizations in epic confrontation. The prize, possession of a universe gone wild. This will be the end of human civilization, and the world will belong to a planet of apes. And that day is upon you now. These are the most popular and successful films of their kind ever conceived. The classic Saga of the Apes, rated PG. 20th Century Fox wants you to go ape. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Genesis! Oh, what's in the box? Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spataro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and as is often the case, I am joined by my good buddy, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. Hello, how's it going? I think today the the H stands for human, well, lousy human. <laughs> <laughs> lousy human bastard. <laughs> and we are joined for the first time on Back to the Bins, but after multiple appearances on Is It Yours by Mr. Rich Handley. And I, you know, Rich, I hate that we feel, I feel like we pigeonhole you in as a Planet of the Apes guy, and I think your career is so much more than that. Uh, yeah, especially because I've never heard of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> but I, but I, I suspect that there's more to you than Planet of the Apes is what I was saying. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, like, 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 so. like some, <laughs> somewhere on the True, Two True Freaks Network, it, the, the image is just that you live on the set of a Planet of the Apes movie and, and, and have no other life beyond that. Uh, I mean, I do, I do live in an Adobe building and dress up <laughs> in green. Okay, well, you know what? There's something to be said for that. Uh, so, what, as we were saying before we started recording, uh, probably a good time for you to just give your Planet of the Apes slash comic book cred uh, okay. to anybody listening. Um, I'll, I'll do the comic book cred first because that's, that's the easy one to say, which is that up until recently I was the editor of Eagle Moss's Star Trek graphic novel collection. Um, and that ended, which is the only reason why I'm no longer <laughs> that. Uh, but I've done other work for um, um, IDW, Boom Studios, DC Comics, uh, regarding Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, uh, Planet of the Apes for Boom Studios, and Hellbla I've wor worked on a Hellblazer book for DC. Um, and uh, as far as Planet of the Apes go, one of the things I already alluded to, um, which was that I worked with Boom Studios, 
uh, on their four book set of um, reprints of the Marvel series, the, the, the actual comics we're going to be discussing today. And um, uh, so I wrote the introductions to each of those four books and then also provided some editorial assistance. Uh, I'm the co-editor of a Titan Books um, short fiction anthology with Jim Beard, Planet of the Apes, Tales from the Forbidden Zone. Uh, let's see what else. I did two um, two Planet of the Apes essay anthologies for Seacourt with Joe Baronado, which are uh, Bright Eyes, Ape City, and uh, I'm sorry, Bright Eyes, Ape City, Examining the Planet of the Apes Mythos, and the Sacred Scrolls comics on the Planet of the Apes. Let's see, am I missing anything? Oh, actually, I got my start doing two um, unauthorized books, uh, Timeline of the Planet of the Apes and From Aldo to Zero, Lexicon of the Planet of the Apes. And um, and I'm, I'm recent, my most recent thing is that I've been helping. Uh, I wrote a, a chapter for um, Ed Gross's upcoming revised version of Planet of the Apes Revisited. And uh, that's my, my that's my apes cred. That the, on, the only thing I have in my history that beats out your apes cred is... In 1968, when it was in the movies, I saw Planet of the Apes on the big screen, and I know you can't, you cannot say that. Uh, in 1968, I said "Why?" and was born. Yes, so I knew you couldn't say yeah, that. Well, you know, actually, for all you two know, maybe you saw Planet of the Apes and just were unaware of it. Uh, well, here's the thing: I'm, I'm a Planet of the Apes fan because my mom was a Planet of the Apes fanatic, so it's entirely possible she was sitting in the theater there. And if so, I would have. Been but I have no way to ask her that, so I don't know. There you go. So we'll, we'll, we'll take it that I have that over you. It's the only thing I have. So, you know, just, just like listening again, and I, I already knew your background, but listening to it again, I was thinking, you know, we really should do an episode of this show where we just talk about the history of the Planet of the Apes in comic books because I think it, it could be a fascinating discussion to have. I'm uh, just thinking after hearing his resume, like, how is this the first time he's been on bins? Yeah. Well, cause, <laughs> we should have had you a could, long time ago. Because I locked sorry. him up on Is It Yours. Uh, That's but I am, you know, I've, I've done a lot of a lot of different things. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, um, I, you know, I, I've, <laughs> I, I'd love to do more. So, I, you know, there are people who do have done a whole lot more than me, but um, but I've had fun. But, you know, well, like I said, I, I'd love to just do and at some point, hopefully, if you're available, we, we will do more. But today what we're doing is in relationship to the. Uh, my dogs are going nuts. I'm going to just hold on. Let me close the door so you don't hear it so loud. It's Planet of the Apes, not Planet of the Dogs. In fact, all the dogs were, were killed in whatever, 1970-something. And that's why the 82. dogs... We're annoying podcasters. Yeah. So so what, what we're doing today is in, in conjunction with our discussion of the movie Conquest of the Planet of the Apes on Is It Yours, uh, we decided to do a review or a kind of readover of the adaptation of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which uh, I just wanted to give some dates on that. The movie opened on June 14th, 1972. And that became important to me to know because I was trying to think, was this, you know, one of these things where they adapted it from the script and didn't have the movie as a, uh, as a reference when they made it? But no, because this came out in 1975 or it started in 1975. So, you know, over three years after the movie was released, I'm, I'm pretty confident they didn't have it in, in a file drawer for that long. 
the cover date on the first issue, this came out in Planet of the Apes magazine, which uh, it was it was broken down. It was in issue 17 uh, with part one. Part two was in issue 18 along with part three. Part four was in issue 19, part five in issue 20, and part six in issue 21. So this would have been, and each one is about the length of, a, of an average comic book. So this would have been a six issue run if they had continued adventures on the Planet of the Apes where they were reprinting them. Uh, the first one was released on December 4th, 1975, and they ran through to, uh, to March of 76. And uh, the story was, or the adaptation was written by Doug Mensch, and it was illustrated, or at least the, the first parts were illustrated, no, excuse me, all of it was illustrated by Alfredo Alcala. Uh, now, I don't believe I owned any of this when it was coming out. Despite my love of Planet of the Apes, for some reason, when these things were coming out, the comic adaptation fell short for me. Uh, it wasn't until later on, looking back, that all of a sudden I started to love all the comic books that they came out with. And, uh, well, 75, you guys would have been old enough to be getting comic books, but I don't know if you would have been old enough to be getting magazine comic books. Well, the funny thing is, um, my, my adult life, a large part of my freelance writing career has been writing about things that are connected to comics, but I actually didn't read comics until I was 16. <laughs> uh, so um, I skipped over the childhood comics and, and started later. Um, but once I got into Planet of the Apes, I collected every single Planet of the Apes comic that's been published. And I love those Marvel magazines. I really do. I've developed more of a love for them, yeah. like I said, as, as an adult. When I picked them up as a kid, I don't know if it was the black and white, which I enjoy very much now, but kind of, I think, left too much to the imagination. I, maybe I didn't have enough imagination of my own. I needed them to, to, to color it up for me. But for some reason, the black and white just didn't do it for me the same way. And I remember, you know, trying to read this, uh, you know, the Savage Tales or... Uh, you know, tomb, the, what's it, not Tomb of Dracula, the Dracula Lives, uh, and none of them really ever hit home the way the color books did. Yeah. You know, I think I've heard other people say the same thing. Um, it, it It's a little jarring at first. If you've if only read color comics, first time you read a black and white one, um, it's a different experience. But I, I've always been of the mind that the black and white works really well. Um well, actually, I should say it depends on the Marvel story. Like, I think for uh, I think for Future History Chronicles and um, <clears throat> excuse me for Future History Chronicles and uh, Terror on the Planet of the Apes, I think it works really well. There are a couple of stories where it's a little more difficult to make out the detail. I think it works okay on the uh, on the Conquest adaptation, though. I do too, but I'm like as I'm looking at the Conquest adaptation, I, I also you know. The books generally had two stories in them. One would, part would be the comics adaptation, and one part would be another story. I can't say I sat and read the other stories for today's purposes, but I did page through them. And sometimes the artwork looked very undetailed, or lacking detail, if I want to say this more correctly. Uh, it depends on who the on who the artist was. I, when it's Tom Sutton, it's extremely detailed. Some of the others, not as much. Yeah, that seems fair. Uh, 
Uh, Scott, when, I know you you are just about complete on your collection of the magazines, right? I'm pretty close. Yeah, I, I don't lack too many of them. Um, for me, I don't remember ever even seeing um, Planet of the Apes, the magazine, as a kid. So I don't know if you know the, our local newsstand didn't sell it or you know I, I just didn't notice it or whatever. And it became one of those, you know, to me it was like one of those legends. You know, it's like I'd never seen it. It was something I was kind of vaguely interested in. And it wasn't until I moved to Georgia. So by that point, I was older than 25. And I remember going to uh, a flea market and a guy had a a big old stack of them that I bought. And that kind of jump started my interest in them right there. But they sat for a long time before I really read too many of them. And it wasn't until we did um, Planet of the Apes Month way back when, whenever we did that on this show that I read all of that. So I, I basically read all the apes comics that existed at that time for that show. And I found this to be an interesting, you know, it was an interesting project, the magazine, because like you say, you, you generally, not every issue, but most every issue, you would get at least two stories. You would get um, part of a film adaptation and they did adapt all five films and then you would also get um, an original story. And f- when the magazine first started, that original story was a was a continuing. It was original, but it was a continuing story that was set somewhere in the the apes timeline. And eventually, to my memory, that one ends, and then they just do like one and two off type of stories after that. And the quality on those continues the whole time. Terror on the Planet of the Apes ran for most of the issues. Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, ran close to the end, but it it um it became very trippy with things like giant frogs, yes. and apes, and all sorts of things. Yeah, it was it was really wild, and and I mean it was a little bit wild in the beginning too, because you've got that one issue where they encounter the the apes that are doing like a Davy Crockett thing yeah. down, the, down the river and all that. So it was, it was a little strange right from, from the beginning, but yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it goes really off the rails towards the end. And a lot of the art got really weird too. Um, so yeah, it, it, to me it was, as far as the original content, I felt kind of, kind of fell off towards the end, but the adaptations for the most part are, are pretty strong throughout. And, it wasn't until doing that read-through project that I realized that they did adapt all five films. I never knew that. All these years until doing that reading project, I never realized that. Um, so that's why when we covered Conquest over on Is It Jaws, I was just like, you know what, we should we should talk about the adaptations. Because I wonder how many other people may not have ever discovered these comic adaptations as well. Because... To the best of my knowledge, they've never been reprinted um, unless they were reprinted in those ones that you had a hand in, Rich. I'm not sure. Are they in there? Yeah, the, uh, Boom pre- pre- uh, did four-book hardcover set, uh, and every Marvel story is in there with the exception of the UK story, Ape Slayer. Other than that, everything else is in there. Oh, wow. And That's awesome. Yeah, the only reason we didn't include Ape Slayer is that Marvel UK... <coughs> um, uh, posed a rights issue for it. Huh. Yeah, that, but everything else is in there. All the original stories and all five adaptations. 
Now, how long is that Ape Slayer storyline? Is it just like an issue, or is it a it's, whole? It's uh, eight chapters, and what it is is um, it, it, it's um, let's say eight, uh, sixteen to twenty-three. I, you know, it's been a while since I've read it, but it's um, it's eight issues of the Marvel UK sister title. But Marvel UK ran the same stories that ran in the United States, but because it was a weekly comic instead of a monthly comic, uh, which is pretty common in Britain. They ended up running out of stories because there are months in which like, you can't just split it up into four chapters because there are longer months and they ended up um, they ended up uh, running out and they ended up commissioning an, an, a, a basically a filler story to keep, to hold them over until they could you know they have more U.S. material but rather than hire someone to write something new and this is just crazy they. Um, they took a, an existing story from Marvel's Kill Raven, which was a War of the Worlds themed story. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. They they swapped out Martian heads for gorilla heads, <laughs> and and so the story was about Martian apes. <laughs> Uh, and instead of Kill Raven, his name was Ape Slayer, and they basically changed his hair color and so forth, and changed the names of his friends. But it's the same artwork, uh, except now you have, um, you know, ape overlords instead of Martian overlords. And because the editing was really pretty sloppy, every now and then the word Kill Raven shows up <laughs> because they didn't catch him. So it's pretty funny to read. I, I really wanted to include that in the boom set, but we weren't allowed. <laughs> now, do you, do you know offhand which issues of the uh, British release they were in? Yeah. Yes, I do. Actually, I have an index of that, so let me just take a look. It's uh, issues uh, 23 to 30. I will have to seek those out because <laughs> our, our – uh, English well, you can friend. find them all. You can find the whole run at, at Hunter's Planet of the Apes archive. That's, You'll find uh, scans yes. of the whole thing. I think yeah, that's so. where uh, our, our friend Andy Leyland, who's in London, or not in London, in England, uh, he had referred me to a website where they had the British comics, and I think that may have been it. Yeah, Hunter's site is the basically the uh, Planet of the Apes fan site, and he's got them all. So, yeah, you'll find them there, 18 to 23. I mean, 23 to 30. I don't know why I just said that. 23 to 30. Despite the fact that Marvel had done the exact same thing during their American Star Wars run with a couple of issues of John Carter that they reworked as being Star Wars, mm -hmm. I didn't really know if that story was true about apes. I'd heard that story a long time ago, but I didn't really know if it was true. And then oh, recently um, I was at a... Uh, uh, what do you call it, pawn shop, and picked up a bunch of UK stuff that they just, they had, and they didn't really know what it was, so they didn't know how to handle it. So they were all, I think they were like three, $3 a piece, which was mm. an absolute steal. Absolutely. And I got a couple of the, the later issues where it started to be um, the, the stories you're talking about, and then also they started running like a co-feature with like the Hulk and I think Tomb of Dracula, Mm -hmm. and, I, and I was aware of them, but I'd never actually laid eyes on them. But it, I remember the very first time I ever saw one of those covers, it almost looks like a Marvel team-up. So it almost looks like the Hulk on the Planet of the Apes or Dracula on the planet. And I remember, like, oh, my God, that'd be so cool. You know? Yeah, you <laughs> know, it's not. It's just they're running together. If they could have gotten away with it, they probably would have. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
right, so you, you would have you would have inevitably seen the Hulk fighting a giant gorilla. Right. <laughs> and as as a, I don't know if as a kid if that would have excited me more or if it would have angered me. I'm not sure, but I know as an adult it would I would have found it or I would find it incredibly amusing. Well, ju- I I just suddenly had this image in my head of uh, the, the of the Hulk throwing Aldo to the ground and yelling Hulk has smashed ape. I, I just have this picture. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's take a look at the adaptation. Uh, I, I think what I'd like to do is just kind of go through it issue by issue, and I'm not going to give a full synopsis, but I'm just going to kind of say what part of the movie it covers, and then we'll just give our, our take on it, and then we'll move on to the next one. So again, the first one was in uh, Planet of the Apes number 18, which, oh, excuse me, number 17, uh, which has a cover date of February of 76, but it was actually released on December 4th, 1975. And part one is uh, of the story is entitled Slaves. Uh, and it opens up with a police officer or a law enforcement official or some sort of army guy or whatever he may be uh, patrolling uh, North America in 1991. And it goes through with uh, Armando and, and Caesar arriving uh, in the city, and it takes us up to the point of the movie uh, with lousy human bastards, which in this one, I think he just says lousy human. I don't think there is a bastards. Uh, I don't know that it would have been allowed. In fact, to be honest with you, the way it looks on that page, it looks like it may have been written in there and then removed yeah. by editorial. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. So the things that jumped out at me about this first part is I think probably the thing that jumped out at me most is how little Armando looks like Ricardo Montalban. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing they didn't have the rights to the likenesses and they had to change the way every, you know, the way people looked. Um, the artwork in this first one, now I, I like Alcala, but the artwork in this one, particularly on the apes and Caesar, uh, seems to be a little inconsistent to me. Uh, yeah. You know, there's, there's points where it, it didn't feel like he had a real feel for, like, you know, it's, it's I, I was thinking about this, it's it's not so much that he had to have a feel for drawing apes, so much as he had to have a feel for drawing apes as they appeared in the movies, you know, mm-hmm. that as their car- character model, and that's where it felt like he just didn't quite have a grasp on it yet. But I do think, and Sometimes, I'm jumping ahead. Sometimes, like, he was trying to find a happy medium between what real apes look like and what John Chambers' makeup looked like. Yes. And I'm not sure it was effective. Because, you know, he's got them all shorter and hunched over with, you know, their shoulders up. And it seems like that's what he's trying to do. If you look at, in particular, at um, uh, early on when you see Caesar, like, he's really short compared to Armando. And uh, so I, I get the feeling he's trying to find a happy medium at times it works at other times it not so much especially the gorillas i think his gorillas are a little off yeah i thought the same thing sometimes it's hard to tell uh which um species of ape it, it is because mm-hmm. sometimes there's there's scenes with gorillas that it, it takes a minute to kind of figure out, oh, okay, this is a gorilla. This is not a chimpanzee. It, it just thing. seems with the gorillas, what he did was he just gave them kind of a pointy head. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, like <laughs> yeah. that's the only distinction, really. 
his gorillas are a little like the John Chambers orangutans, but with pointy heads. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I also noticed that there's an odd mix when it comes. I, I didn't really catch anything with the human characters. And if you guys did, please point it out. But with the apes, occasionally there was something that is much closer to the film apes to, to a point. It almost looks like photo referenced. Um, there's a shot later on I'll talk about. It. I don't think it's in. No, it's it's in the next chapter in in issue 18, um, where it shows an orangutan that is. I mean, it's Zayas. It is so Zayas, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. When they, you uh, know, it's funny because um, one thing that was odd about Conquest was the near the 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 almost you know the near absence of orangutans. There's remarkably few orangutans in in um in uh. In conquest, if you on film, you see mostly gorillas and and uh, and chimps. So maybe they didn't have, given when this was made. Maybe they didn't have photo reference for any film orangutans. See the way uh, they present. Yeah, I'm just be. thinking when they present it in the movies, they you know they they had said early on you know the gorillas were the warring class, the mm-hmm. uh, orangutans were the uh, scientists, and the chimpanzees were the pacifists. So. It almost feels like the gorillas should be taking the largest majority of the battle, which not real. I don't seem to remember that in the movie. I seem to remember it being very, uh, if not chimp heavy, certainly a very very large, uh, you know, uh, showing by the chimpanzees. Right now, yeah, basically, I think the orangutans went and hid in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> When they when they when they go to the uh, you know he's given the history about the dogs you know they have the uh, the statues to the to the dog and the cat and underneath it says Tabby and Rover uh, so yeah, so that made me laugh yeah. I don't I don't know if they're saying all the dogs and cats died and these are you know indicative of all of them and those are the names we're going to give them or if this is supposed to be a grave specifically made for these two pets. Well, I tend to think, I mean, Tabby and Rover are, you know, kind of cliche names, especially Rover for for, uh, for a cat and a dog. I think that this is just supposed to stand for everything. Yeah. I mean, I think they certainly yeah. do in the movie in any case. Yeah, but in, in which yeah. case they should not have name plates at all. I, I think that, that's <laughs> just a little too over the top for me. Uh, one of the things I, I think is kind of interesting the way it's presented in this that we really didn't get in the movies is that there's a human faction that's against the use of the apes because it's taking away their jobs. Well, that's actually in the beginning of the film. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't specifically yeah. remember that in the movie. Yeah, if you go back and watch the very beginning, you'll see people walking by with uh, protest signs. Yeah. They're human laborers who I... have lost jobs to the apes. Okay, and I've only, I've only seen the movie on like that. two or three dozen times, so you know, I, may, I may not have had a chance <laughs> to see that. I mean, I you, you might, you know, you might even look. On that specific oh. part of the film, I, I had a question on that. Um, so, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think this is showing slightly more provocation for the ape, and I think is, I think it's Aldo, but I'm not sure. But the gorilla that goes nuts. And ends up getting clubbed and everything, and is the reason why Caesar says lousy human bastards 
it shows where he's being led through the picketers, mm-hmm. and one of the picketers throws, it looks like a rock at him, mm-hmm. and hits him, and that's when he goes nuts. I don't remember that in the film. Yeah, that's the, that part's added. But I think okay. I, I, it's been a long time since I've read the... I, I've read multiple drafts of the script, and I don't remember whether that's in the script or not. I know that for for this movie and for Battle, uh, Marvel had been supplied with early draft scripts, and they thought right. it would be fun to uh, to adapt those instead of requesting the, the, the more updated ones. So it's entirely possible. The way that they – I spoke to, to Doug Mensch years ago about this, and what he said to me was – he thought it would be that fans would get a kick out of seeing an earlier version of the story because um, you know they can always watch the movie and see the final version. And since he had been given these earlier versions of the scripts anyway, you know why not run with it? So it's entirely possible that things like that may have been in one of the earlier drafts. It's just been so long since I've read them that I don't I, I couldn't say one way or the other. Right. No, but for me personally, I, I've always been a huge fan of Marvel's movie adaptations. Mm-hmm. And this was a lot of the reason why is I like the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the alternate universe version, you know, where things are, it's the same story, but maybe certain details are a little different. And I, I really like that. It To me, it gives you more insight into the story. Sometimes it clarifies some things. Sometimes it glosses over some things. And, of course, you would always get, or typically, not every time, but typically you would get, uh, you know, what we've come to refer to as the DVD extras, you know, a little scene that didn't make the film, you know, that, that got cut, that, you know, wound up on the editing room floor or never got filmed in the first place. And, that sort of thing is exactly why I love these. But I have to admit, not being real high on the film, there, I didn't. I don't feel like I caught as many of them with this as I would with, say, like the first film or the third film, which I can quote. You know, with this yeah. one, it, it's one of those where I'm coming to. A, I, I, I. By the way, I wanted to thank. I'm not sure if it was you or Zachy, but I think it was you had highly recommended the novel, and I did go and read the novel, and I really enjoyed it a lot. That was and me. I noticed that. Yeah. yeah. I thank you for doing that because I. That, I that novel is fantastic. It's it is, and it really yeah. gave me a much higher appreciation for this story um, because, you know, for one, when you're, when you're reading it, you get to visualize everything yourself. So there is no budget, you know, you can, you can go as grand as you want. And so I realized, okay, this really is an epic story and it really is on a grand scale in my mind that unfortunately the, the film just couldn't, couldn't match. And I think kind of the same thing. I'm sorry. The the film was, was filmed at a mall and it shows Right. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like in this comic, it looks like a larger city. So this is one of those examples yes. where the comic actually helps the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I dare say, to a certain degree, um, I I find it superior. There, there's there are things that are lacking that the film has, but as far as the setting, it's definitely superior. Because again, you know, it's it's all you know, drawings, so you're not restricted by budget, and so you can go as grand as you want. I mean, the very first shot we get, you know, after the the opener of, you know, North America 1991 is this 
futuristic looking city that's really cool that we just don't get in the film. So right out of the gate, it's like, okay, the future, you know? <laughs> right. Which, exactly. And I just, you know, find it again. I, I think, you know, people didn't realize in 1975 that in, you know, 2022, we'd still be looking at this. So <laughs> right. 1991 to them seemed like the far off future. Right. Now, looking at the artwork again, you know, I, I gave some criticism and I don't want to be totally critical, but I am pointing out the negatives to some extent. The other thing that like jumped out at me a little bit, I'm just looking at uh, uh, the page after uh, after Aldo is hit with the rock. The next page in the middle, there's a shot of McDonald. Uh, and that's kind of like my memory of black and white comics is that kind of thing like that shot. And I think I'm probably being unfair to it, but it looks very stiff to me. Uh, it looks like the kind of posing that, you know, when I would try and do artwork that I would have a character in, it doesn't look like, you know, liquid, like it's flowing, you know, it has no, no real movement to it. Uh, right. And I, I think color might have actually aided it in some ways, but like that's that's the the negative. I, I think it's I think that negative stands out more in a black and white book. I get right. That. Now I, I should point out that a lot of the facial features on on the characters are actually really good as you go through this book. Uh, you know some some of it's some you know some of it, it it's it's I think the word inconsistent just stands out to me. But some of it's got you know real good use of the black and white aspect to create kind of a mood some of it looks a little brighter some of it looks darker uh you know there, there is a lot of good work in the artwork but it's just i think and mostly in this first part is it's just somewhat inconsistent yeah right. I, i've um, i've read other stuff by alcala particularly his uh his, his run his swamp thing work and it is a, he's a very skilled artist but his work is it can be inconsistent so, Absolutely, yeah, and and I find it also uh, depends greatly on the subject matter that he's tackling because I have never cared for when he did uh, like mainstream superhero type stuff. Uh, it always looks really odd to me. But when he would do more horror oriented stuff, I found that his style really lent well to that. Something like Swamp Thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this, this really surprises me that I like it so much because um, I'm I, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm neither a fan nor a detractor. I I like the guy when he when he works, and I'm not such a big fan when it doesn't work. But for the most part, his art on this, I was really impressed with it because he'd be far from my first choice. I mean, he probably if you know if I had to pick a hundred artists to illustrate this story, he he wouldn't even make the list. But seeing this I, i'm really impressed with the job that he did for the most part and especially in later chapters and i'm sure we'll talk about it there's a lot of um silence you know where there is no dialogue at all so his artwork is literally carrying the story in a lot of sequences later on when it's just the apes you know they're preparing or they're you know they're hoarding weapons or whatever and I think when you can follow that with no dialogue, no descriptor boxes, nothing at all, no narration, 
and it still flows and you can follow. I, I think that always speaks very well to the artist. And I was impressed with those sequences that, you know, now maybe granted it's familiarity with the story and with the film and where it's going, but I still found it, you know, flows very nicely and, and you can follow the narrative just visually. Well, as as I, I said, I think, I think the, uh, I think the first one may have been him getting his legs a little bit because I do think the artwork improves yeah dramatically as it goes along uh it's funny because the, the second part uh i really like the artwork in the second part except for the splash page so you so yeah. so you you open up the book and your first at least for me my first impression is oh, i don't like this and then every other page i like a lot uh the first yeah. the first page the splash page has that look to me of a mad magazine parody yes <laughs> and, and that's, that's what i don't like about it it doesn't look it just just doesn't look real. It looks like it's it's staged for humor almost. Uh, but after that, I think the artwork and I should just say before I go any further on that, the second part is called Rights of Bondage, and it opens up with them beating Aldo, and it continues with Caesar leaving and Aldo, uh, Armando turning himself in and being questioned, and ultimately Caesar makes his way into a uh, a cargo of of apes that are being brought over so that he can kind of blend in. And it ends with the captors or the keepers or handlers or whatever you want to call them, uh, kind of watching him and seeing that he seems to have a little something more on the ball than the others. Uh, this is an example of where I actually think the comic one-ups the movie. Because I think that this, this issue in particular uh, gives a lot more scope to the story. You feel like this cut this covers a much bigger area not the back parking lot of a mall <laughs> and and a perfect example is when caesar <laughs> uh you know when caesar runs you see him run through a city and end up running up a path on a mountain and armando you know chases him along this this mountain path uh, it, it works to me so much better than the way that they were forced by necessity to block that in the film right yeah, and they, they, you know, yeah, they and they take the time with this to develop it. Uh, you know, anybody who's listened to this show knows us our, our criticism of, uh, you know, compressed comics or decompressed, overly decompressed comics. Excuse me. In this instance, there's a little decompression, but it allows for the story to flow a little bit to see, you know, what's going on with Caesar a little bit and how he's handling the time alone from Armando. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's I, I think it's giving us a little more characterization than they could in the movie because they had to move it along a little quicker. So, yeah. you know, in this in this instance, I, I really like the way they did that. And the artwork, as I said, in this issue, I think is is well, this chapter is a real step up from what we got before. Uh, I'm looking right now at the page uh, where they're uh, conditioning the apes. And in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a close-up of Caesar's face. And, you know, it could very, very easily, and it probably is photo-referenced, but it looks so good. By the way, while looking for the page you were talking about, I passed the uh, the headshot of Zayas you were talking about. <laughs> was, was, I was like, oh, that's got to be the one he's talking about. Is that when they're... Uh... It's right. It's when all the um, apes are being brought in for fingerprinting. Yes. Is that? What and they, yeah, and yeah. they just show like the top like, half of like his. Walking across the, the, the panel, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
By the way, the, uh, to, to, to our caller's credit, earlier on in the story, in this chapter, there's a, a, a page in which um, Armando is comforting Caesar as he hides in what looks to be like a mine shaft or something. It's beautiful. Like it, I, that artwork is really good. I wish issue one had been that good, but like, like we said, when it works, it works because that's a really strong page. Yeah, I love that sequence in the mine shaft because, as yeah. you say, it gives scope. It's a completely different setting than the film, um, so it gives you, you know, a, a different uh, visual and everything. And I find that in this sequence, um, I think it's a very nice blending between the film apes and real apes. Um, There's a couple of shots here, especially top of page six, second panel, page six, where Caesar is kind of, you know, he's just sitting there in a very kind of relaxed position. And he's saying, oh, Mondo, forgive me. He looks more he looks closer to Caesar in the in the whatever we call them reboot films or reimagined films whatever you know, yeah. yeah and and I really like that I like the attention to detail also that, like you could see he's nervously like fingering a little chain on the floor yeah yeah right you know because he, he's upset he's 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 afraid that Armando is going to be upset with him uh, you know he knows that he messed up it, it's yeah, there's there's a lot of emotion in these pages, and I think that's really good, especially as you know that page and the next one where they they show uh, Caesar, Caesar sitting by himself, and then it pulls back for an even further thing, and, and clearly he knows he's never going to see Armando again, even though he yeah, even by Armando page. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. you know there, there's there's a lot of like, and you can almost hear like a score swelling at that point. Uh, so it's got a cinematic feel to it. The storytelling, I think, in this particular chapter is impeccable. I think it really just, you know, you don't even have to read the words, to be honest with you. You know, one of the, as I'm used to go to the next page, we were talking about likeness rights before. And it's interesting that most of the actors at Ape Management don't look like the ones in the movies. But I didn't care at all. Like uh, Governor uh, uh, Governor Brett kind of looks like Rock Hudson, <laughs> but like I, I didn't care. Like I, I actually think that these likenesses work for these characters. And it, when 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 people are adapting, when artists are adapting a, a movie or a TV show for comics, and they can't do likeness rights, it's a it's a difficult line to walk because you want a character to be recognizable to the audience so that they don't feel like you really screwed this up, but you also don't want to get hit with a lawsuit. And I, I think in this case, okay, go, <laughs> Culp looks nothing at all Culp-like. But the other three, uh, I think, are reminiscent of how they look on screen, particularly, um, particularly Breck. I think well, McDonald's. Yeah, no, he, his likeness is yeah. actually quite good. But I was going to say Breck, even though he doesn't look like the actor, it's very Breck-like. Although I have to say that I chuckled every time they show him smoking a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, what's interesting is that, and I don't know if you guys agree with me on this, there were times when I felt that the uh, the comic made the movie a better film, but there were also times I thought that the comic uh, magnifies the film's flaws. Um, because one of the problems, and I think we discussed this last time when we were discussing the movie, um, is that... Um, 
this is this is an this is not even twenty years after Escape. So the idea that you can go from apes living in the wild to just saying do, and they understand. Oh, you mean want me to go and wash some cups and then you know wash my hands and then go to a bookstore and pick up a book uh, based on letters and numbers and then you want me to walk around the corner and deliver it and while I'm at it I would groom a woman's hair. You know, from the one word, do, it's absurd, right? Like it, they, they make it work in the movie, but for some reason, when you read it on the printed page, and it's just a guy saying do, and then an ape is doing tasks, that to me is an example where the comic unfortunately magnified how absurd that, present, that premise is. I don't know if you guys felt that way, but when the movie doesn't work, I don't care, because I like it. I love that movie, and I, I overlook its flaws, but I found it here, I'm like, wow, that, that's really kind of silly. I don't know. I'll, I'll agree and I'll disagree with you because, on, on the other hand, I think the fact that you know they they are illustrated more, you know, they're illustrated closer to actual apes. Mm-hmm. They're they're still a little more human like. I, I think they're somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? Yeah. A, a little bit better than they are in the film. Uh, that's one of the things that, un- unfortunately, you know, with with the budget constraints, I think that's one of the big flaws of the film is that Caesar looks good. Caesar got all the, the makeup attention and the really good prosthetics, and then the other apes just don't look that great. They they look like men in monkey costumes, you know. Especially Whereas, if you look at crowd scenes and you look at the apes in the back, it's like Halloween, right? And yeah. they and I didn't feel like they tried, and I don't know if this is purposeful. I don't know if it's direction, or if it's just really, um, you know, a flaw with the film. But I feel like they weren't making the efforts to have the apes be ape-like, like they like it, when you watch the original Planet of the Apes, and you know you see them moving, they're making a concerted effort to move like apes. I mean, they're not completely like we would see wild apes, but they're not wild apes. They're apes that have evolved into a civilization. So it's that fine line. Whereas, as you say, these apes here are supposed to be 20 years out of the wild. So they should still be much more like, you know, actual primitive apes. And yeah. I don't get that from the movie. Instead, they're standing around waiting tables in exactly. a different manner. Yeah, it Ex- doesn't make yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it, it it doesn't. But I I do feel like here in this adaptation, I think because of the way Alcala illustrates them, there there is slightly more apeness to them. So even though it may be an ape that's waiting a table or or whatever. They're still hunched. They're still, you that know, is, yeah. in that posture. If you know what I'm, what I'm trying to say, it's, it, it is silly. Um, I, I, there's also, and I really wish I'd made a note of it because this is such an important uh, part, and I, I totally failed to write it down. But somewhere in this, there was a a line of dialogue, something to the effect of, they had made an evolutionary jump. And it was noticed, and I, I can't remember yes. where I read no, that. That's definitely in there, yeah. I yeah. Saw that. And the film totally 
glosses over all that, to, to my recollection anyway. There's never a, an acknowledgement of, hey, these these apes are, you know, something's changed, you know? I, I think the only thing that, you know, they talk about how they're getting more rebellious and, and that sort of, but there's never an acknowledgement of, wow, these are not, you know, the apes we just pulled out of the wild 20 years ago. Something has clearly happened to mature their thinking process and all that. It's one of the, the reasons, I'm sorry, I'm jumping way to the end of the story here, but it's one of the reasons I'm really glad in, in this adaptation that the Lisa speaking thing is not in it, because that's always bugged me about Conquest, oh, the, the theatrical cut. Yeah, yeah, she really is. Yeah. And I I don't really feel her her absence I, I'll forgive you know her not her barely being in it at all you know if, if it means we don't get that that scene of her speaking at the end because <laughs> I that's always driven me nuts it's like it's already enough of a leap that they're at this point in 20 years that they can wait tables and all this stuff that they're doing but they should not be able to suddenly speak well, in just 20 I mean that's that's literally millions of years of evolution. But I, I just kind of, I just kind of write it off with what we talked about when we talked about the movie that you know Cornelius and Zira coming over somehow spread the same virus that we have right. in the in the recent issue. movies, uh, and that you know that that has exponentially accelerated their uh, you know their, their evolution. Uh, so the, the the speaking actually didn't bother me because of that. That, that, that yeah, I think, there's, really I think there's a number of factors involved in explaining it. I think the virus is definitely one of them. The films strongly imply that this is the, that this is divine will. They don't. I mean, there's no God showing up and saying it, but several characters say that this might be a divine thing. But the big one is at the end of the movie when Caesar compares himself to an emperor moth mm -hmm. and the implication is right. that the next that there's some sort of communication going on with all these apes because somehow he fully expects he's not even speaking hyperbolically he fully expects that the next day this will be happening across five continents so right. there's something and he compares itself to the idea of an emperor moth being able to communicate over miles so something telepathic something empathic something is going on whether it's divinely inspired or it's telepathy um the the, the comic series revolution on the planet of the apes specifically leans toward towards a telepathic concept um but i think this is one area where the comic really does credit to the film because the comic if you notice every time caesar is passing an ape they're staring at him it's like uh, Alcala picked up on that from the movie. As, as Caesar walks by, apes are noticing him. Here, it's almost like he's E.F. Hutton, the ape. You're giving your guys age, you, you should know what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> he's yeah. he's yeah. Ape F. Hutton, right? So that when he when he walks by, the apes, you know, they, they, they stop and, and stare at him. So the implication is that the reason he knows that this will be happening on five continents the next day is the explanation for how he's able to tell them to bring guns to this basement and so forth. It's because throughout the movie, he's doing it with his mind. And it's a wild concept, but it's to me, the only way that any of it makes any sense at all. <laughs> and I get off the soapbox. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, I think it's a really great point. 
to keep going with this same issue has the next part, which is part three, uh, which opens with, it's really, when you think about it, it's a short part of the film that this third one covers because it opens with them questioning Armando and it ends with him jumping out of the window. Yeah, it is a weirdly short span of the film. But there's a lot, you know, again, there's a lot of development that goes on because they stretched it out a little bit. You know, they show Caesar working with uh, the different apes and how he's having an influence on them. Excuse me. Uh, They show you, uh, you know, the the different meetings with Brecht and, you know, what's going on with him. And then there's uh, the actual uh, auction of of the apes where where McDonald purchases Caesar. Uh, And is that Clark Gable who's selling them? (laughs) That's funny because as you said, (laughs) I went right past that panel just as you said those words. And, yeah, that's clearly Clark Gable. And at the top That's of the page, frankly, my dear, I don't give an ape. At the top of the page, the one there's there's the guy who's bidding. Uh, mm-hmm. In the panel before he's actually bidding, he's on the side, and I'm trying to think what the actor's name that I'm thinking of. What was it like uh, something Morley? I, th- I think th- I think there's definitely photo references here, or it could even be uh, in the one below, you know, the, on the left in the middle. Uh, he could be uh, Fred Mertz. Uh, William Frawley. Uh, so I, 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 oh, no, I don't see which one you're talking about. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> it does look like Mertz. Yeah. So this, this, <laughs> I, I think that he's definitely got some photo referencing going on, and you know, this is before photo referencing was really a thing the way it became later on. Uh, and when when we've discussed photo referencing in the past, I've been very critical of it. Uh, in this instance, it doesn't really bother me. Uh, I'm looking at the, at the bottom of that same page, the middle panel, uh, where they they show. Uh, was is is that Caesar? I'm trying to even see it. It almost looks like a. You mean where it says 950? Uh, are we, I want to make sure we're on the same page. Which which page are you talking about? Now? Uh, page 40, the bottom middle. It almost looks. He, he looks like a vampire in that shot. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a, He's Goth Caesar. Yeah, yeah, it's a very strange looking shot of him there. Um, and, and now the uh, auctioneer has turned into Bruce Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. He looks like a vampire there. Yeah. Well, I guess Marvel got its uh, Tomb of Dracula crossover. Yeah, really. <laughs> On page 42, hmm? so after. Caesar's been purchased and he's in Breck's whatever this is, office, suite, whatever, and Breck, Breck and McDonald. Like <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <he> does. <laughs> but there's that one shot of Caesar and it, it looks like he's caught by Breck reading the label on the bottle. That's that's okay. that's what I interpret from that. It's a it's a silent sequence. Is that in the film? Because I don't I remember don't think that. It is. No, in fact, in the film, it's a seltzer bottle. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I liked this moment. I, I thought this was really clever. Where, you know, you can see that Breck is thinking, was was that ape just reading that bottle, or am I imagining? You know, that's that's how I interpret that scene. I really like it. The, my only issue with it, though, is the the nice little artistic flourish 
of Breck, you know, Breck's face reflected in an eyeball is like, whose eyeball is that? Because Caesar's not looking at him. So who whose eyeball are we seeing Breck's face reflected in? I think that's a case where, like, it. I think that's definitely meant to be Caesar, but the other panels don't back it up. Because if you look at the one top right before that, Caesar's looking at the at the at the uh, bottle, and it, the implication is he realizes, oh crap, he notices me. Okay, I will put it down now and make a big mess and yeah. make an ass of myself. And I, I and I take that I take that as he did glance back at Brecht, and that's what made him realize Brecht was looking at him so closely. And you know, it's, right, it's right. just they didn't have the time or enough room to give you an extra two panels there where he turns and looks at Brecht and looks back. So, yeah. you know, I I, I, right. I interpret it when he's in the close-up that he glanced back at him. Yeah, it's, I, regardless, I, it's a it's a nice artistic touch. It is, and this is a case. This is this whole sequence in uh, in, in the office with the three of them is one that I enjoy, even though it aesthetically looks quite different than the movie. But I um I don't mind. I actually enjoy this scene. I think it's well done. I, I mean, it's strange to see Breck standing around, you know, clutching his chin pensively and and smoking a pipe, and Caesar dressed like uh, I don't know, like um something out of this, like a, a '60s guru. <laughs> it's it's you know. He reminds. Yeah, but it's cool. But his outfit in this sequence, and I think he wears this through the whole rest of the thing, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. His outfit, because it's very flowing on him, almost like a robe or something, reminds me of the end of the Star Wars Christmas special where the Wookiees go to Life Day and all the Wookiees are wearing the big red robes. That's exactly what it reminds me of. That's so funny. That's well, yeah. Okay, so now you see, now I'm never going to be able to read this the same way. <laughs> I'm going to picture him spilling seltzer everywhere and going. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Life Day, everybody! <laughs> but I, th I think the sequence is important, very important, because otherwise it's just it just feels too coincidental that they make the jumps of, hey, is that the ape that was Cornelius and right. Zira's kid? Even though we thought it was shot, but it wasn't, because maybe it was taken right. to a circus, and you know, like like they just piece it together too easily without giving them some extra clues. Yeah, yeah, and maybe right. you know, I don't remember if if this is how it was in the script or if this is just a case that mentioned Alcala realized exactly what you did, which is we really should set this up better. And it's it's you know it's not you know it's it's not hidden, but it's a little bit more subtle. Like you have to be paying attention to get it. Uh, but it's it's definitely a case of show me, don't tell me, which I really like. Mm-hmm. On page 43, by the way, Governor Breck has changed from being uh, Rock Hudson to Sherlock Holmes to being Sean Connery as James Bond, lower left corner. Right. <laughs> yeah, he does look like Sean Connery. Breck's a shapeshifter in this issue. but uh... <laughs> Well, unfortunately, um, if, if there is, again, if there is a real criticism of Akala's art in this, it's that there is some inconsistency to it. And I guess, yeah. I guess if you're going to... Uh, you know, be photo referencing on things that probably lends itself to inconsistency, but I still kind of really like the art on 44 in the bottom left middle panel. And he's back to Sherlock Holmes in that uh, bottom, bottom left in the middle of the panel. It almost looks like uh, Christopher Reeve was the, uh, was the photo reference, except he wasn't famous yet. Right. Exactly. Right. 
I, I should hasten to add, in case anyone listening wonders, like, this is not in any way, you know, saying we don't like this, uh, Kyle. I, at least not for me. I'm a fan of this. I just, you know, it's funny to to see this, though, and, 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 and not recognize, wait a minute, now I'm looking at Basil Rathbone, now he's Sean Connery. It's, it, it is very clear sometimes when you see this yeah and and it's i i'm i'm in total agreement with you uh i i enjoy this artwork but <laughs> but you know but part, you of, part of my job is to have fun with the book as we go through it you know that, yeah, yeah. that doesn't mean we i, I like agree it. with you that he's looking at photo reference of famous people especially because on the very next page he turns into christopher lee i was just gonna say that <laughs> <laughs> Rick is a shapeshifter of all the popular actors in the 60s and 70s. Ah, man, that's so funny. <laughs> so, uh, are we ready to move on to part four, or is there anything else in this that's sure. worth mentioning? Yeah, no, I think that's good. By the way, I um, I wanted to say that I, I even though he doesn't look like Monoban, I, I really dig his uh, the way he draws Armando. I, There's real expression in the face, like it's really well done. Yes, I, I agree. Also, he 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 really did give him a character. Yeah, you know yeah, he, cool, he didn't he didn't just give him generic face. He he you know mm-hmm. he, he 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 was fairly consistent with Armando, where he may not have been consistent with others. Uh, just on the next one, which is uh, issue 19 of Planet of the Apes, the first story. And I'm a little disappointed to say this, but the first story is one that I was referencing earlier. Uh, I like Mike Plug. I've put a lot of Mike Plug's original artwork onto the, the Back to the Bins Facebook page. But uh, he drew the first story in this, and I think that's the one I was referencing earlier where I was saying I didn't like it. <laughs> so as much as yeah, I do, weird. do like Mike Plug, I do not like his artwork in the first story in this book. Well, this is one of the later chapters of uh, Terror on the Planet of the Apes, the opener, opening four-parter we were describing before, and it kind of goes off the rails. It does it not just in the fact that it seems very LSD-induced, but but as you say, the uh, the artwork is not as good as it was in the first couple, the first uh, the opening chapters of the storyline. Um, it's a little wonky. Now, I happen to adore Terror on the Planet of the Apes, probably more than most people, probably more than is, is humanly healthy. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, this is not one of the not one of the better examples of the artwork. Uh, so everything is so clearly out outlined. It's almost like with a marker. I'm just I'm noticing that as I'm looking through it. It looks like everything's it's really thick outlines. Yeah. But um, yeah. So part four is titled. The Savage is King, and it opens up with them questioning Armando and him uh, jumping out of the window to his doom. Uh, it goes on, you know, with uh, Caesar and his reflections on his life with Armando and uh, his interaction with the other apes and preparing for war. Uh, and little by little, the brain trust of the city start to realize what's going on with things, and they call for the ape to be brought over and i guess in light of uh you know nowhere else to go caesar reveals himself to mcdonald at the end of the story i got nowhere else to go i got nowhere else to go i got nothing else 
One page I found really uh, works well for me in this one is page 33. I'm jumping ahead a few pages, but yes. it's, it's all the flashbacks of Armando bringing up Caesar. And um, it's one of the very few times the comics have ever shown us glimpses of Caesar from, befo- from between Escape and Conquest. And um, I think it adds some great depth to their relationship because it, it, he's adorable, first of all. But second of all, uh, because you get it, it's kind of sad, as happy as these two look together. Think about what their life must be like, because we've got Armando cradling him like a baby and taking him for walks and eating bananas with him and, you know, fake arm wrestling and whatever else. But anytime they meet, they even say in this that Armando is the only one who knew he could talk, which means that Armando could never acknowledge the father son relationship he had among other people in the circus. And he had to treat Armando, I mean, uh, Caesar like an animal outside the house, even though this is what their relationship was. I think it's powerful uh, because that's the first thing that went through my head when I was looking at it is these two are the only people who saw these panels. Nobody else ever saw them. And in the, in the movie, I, I, I think that the uh, just the, the charisma of Ricardo Montalban and Roddy McDowell kind of brings you to that relationship where you kind of understand it uh, without yep. them actually being showing it to you. But now here we don't have Roddy McDowell, we don't have uh, Ricardo Montalban, and we have to get people to understand what their relationship was. And exactly. I, I totally agree with you that this page really does the job. Yeah, because what what's so significant about the scenes Montalban appears in in Conquest is that this is not a master. He's not an owner. And, and, and Caesar understands he needs to let him treat him that way in public, but it's for his own protection. But what Armando really is is a very loving father. And it's I kind of like the fact that we actually get to see this here. I liked that in this adaptation... Uh, in the in the first chapter, when they go into the city, it feels to me like this does a better job of showing Armando preparing Caesar for what yes. he's about to see. Because I don't remember that from the film. I actually remember that being one of the things that kind of bothered me is that, for one thing, it never really says why they're going into the city beyond the fact that they're hanging flyers for the circus. Yeah, that and I'm seems thinking, to be the only reason, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I always had the impression, I'm like, dude, the least you could have done was was prepare this poor guy for what's about to happen. So I, I always put at least a little bit of blame onto Armando for not prepping him, and that's why Caesar has the outburst that he does. But in this one, he actually does spend some time saying, okay, before we you know walk through this door or whatever – prepare yourself because the, you know, you're going to be shocked by what you're, you know, that sort of thing. And so I really like that. Um, Although you have you to wonder why he question. Waited I'm, I'm sorry. You have to wonder why he waited till then they came in all the well, way from yeah. they call provinces, right? So days or, or hours of travel, you think he would have spent more than just four panels, but, but yes, you're right. right that, that, uh, that it's, it's cool that we got to see him, saying this is what you're about to step into but please i didn't mean to cut you off i think you can you can extrapolate and believe that he he repeatedly kind of warned him about things and that you know they don't have time to show you that in the comic but they give you at least one example of it i just wanted to say thanks for pointing out i i missed it in here 
that it pointed out that Armando was the only one in the circus that knew. I missed that, and I wondered about that during this sequence, because I love this sequence on page 33. I totally agree with you. I think it's wonderful. I think it's crushing, and I really liked it because one of my favorite, probably my favorite scene of all in Conquest is when McDowell goes off to mourn uh, Armando all by himself, and he has that moment where he cries, and then he screams and rage and all that. That sequence in this adaptation, sadly, isn't very emotional, and I didn't think it worked very well, but this page makes up for it. I really like this, because you can tell just what's going on in Caesar's yep. mind. You know, his, exactly, he just lost his dad. But it got me to thinking two other thoughts, which was one, you know, did the other people in the circus know, which, you know, you just answered that. But also with, you know, the very first panel of the flashback that we see is Armando holding baby Caesar. And then the next one after that is him going for a walk with like little boy Caesar. And it got me to thinking about his surrogate mother. Is she not... In this, not in this, this not in this version, like, but I would think she was part of his life. I would think so, yeah. So, I, so it's funny that I, I never stopped I, to think about that before now. now. I do. I have never thought about that. That's a really interesting question. Huh. I do disagree with you on the sequence where he mourns him, though, because I thought it was effective in here. I thought it shows him just kind of walking off, being sad, crying, and letting that sadness turn into rage. And then he goes over and confronts the other apes to say, I'm ready. Right. So I, I thought that was a good sequence, actually. Now, just to before we get past it, on page 34, I thought we had one of the best examples of the art, which is in the middle left panel, Caesar's face. I think it looks beautiful. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. And then two of the worst examples of the art uh, in the panel right next to it, the way McDonald looks, yeah. and the panel below that with, with Breck. You know, it's funny. McDonald looks like he's trying to be Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> he could go with the anthropomorphizing got... thing, and uh, he could be the frog from Courageous Cat. <laughs> well, he's but, uh, got Norman Osborn hair in a lot of this, too, I noticed. It's true. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, it's a little, it is inconsistent. I guess that's a great way to describe this adaptation, is that the artwork is inconsistent. It, it, most of it is good, even though it like the problem isn't so much that it's badly drawn. It's that one panel does not show the same face as the previous one. Mm -hmm. it, it's like it's, right. it's talent either way, but it's clearly if the face changes, and that that's a little jarring. And I do think for the most part, the storytelling throughout the story is really strong. Uh, you know, some some of the I mean, individual yeah. Yeah, some of the individual renderings might lack a little bit, and and again, it's not that they lack in drawing quality; they lack in consistency. By the way, I, I, while you uh, just a second ago, I, I looked over again the sequence of him mourning, and uh, I got to agree with that. It, I, I have to agree with the idea that it's great. I, I think it works really well with him walking to the garbage can, picking up the, the circus flyer, ripping it up. And you could see on his face in that moment he snaps because now it's rebellion time. Yeah, it goes, it goes, it's, right. it's like it he goes through the stages of grief. Yeah, yeah. And then the very next page, you, you know, you see him, uh, it, it starts where he's just, he looks at apes and they know what to do. 
and and that's why I've always believed that there was something going on more. And that's that the next that page, uh, thirty I think it's thirty five right thirty seven thirty seven make you know kind of shows the beginning of that where he's not even really saying much to them. They just know when they see him what to do. And I, I even like you know I like the touch where he's taking the pads. He's adding in kind of the supplies that he needs for them mm-hmm. to get. Uh, <laughs> Collect repaired Colt 45, and he adds onto it 100 rounds of ammo for above. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's I, both amusing and terrifying at the same time. You know, it's funny. One thing I I found particularly funny about that is what supermarket is selling kerosene? Because that that's I'm like you know he goes and he buys like some bananas and some pears or whatever, and like you know and a, and a, and ten gallons of kerosene. Like where is he shopping? <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's at a gas station, one of those gas station convenience stores. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's the it's the future. In the future, plutonium is available at every corner drugstore. Exactly. Yeah. It, ever since uh, Governor Breck installed fascism, it, it was you know it was it was dictated that you know. Produce and kerosene must be sold in the same stores. So going over to page 44, uh, Culp reminds me of uh, John Belushi's uh, version of Henry Kissinger. And uh, at, at, at the bottom left, is that George C. Scott? Oh, my God, yes. That's great. Yeah, it's funny because Culp's face is, is one that keeps changing throughout. Um, you know, I'm I'm... I think I've mentioned this in the past. I am more of a fan of battle than most fans. I happen to have a real soft spot for it. So one of the few things that doesn't really work for me about this adaptation is I don't buy that this guy becomes Culp. It, it's so jarringly different than Governor Culp that um, it throws me when I, when, I, when I see this, what looks like basically Newman from Seinfeld as a deskbound. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't look like he could survive right? in the post-apocalyptic world. That's what I mean. Yeah, Newman is going to end up this crazed maniac running in a po- post-apocalyptic government. I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but I tell you what, the- though, I'd, still t- I'd totally shell out to go see Newman on the Planet of the Apes, though. <laughs> Hello, Zayus. <laughs> I feel I just feel inclined to point out whenever I see anybody who whose face I may or may not recognize. But page forty-five, middle left, Lee Majors. Yeah. Yes. All right. Now it's now it's becoming a challenge, isn't it? We're going to find them all. That's okay because at the top, the top of the next page, Alfred Pennyworth. Yes. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> But but um uh yeah we've probably totally lost the listeners at this point. It was like why are they just yelling out celebrities' names? Yeah, um, unfortunately, but, <laughs> I don't know if they all have access to this to see. Right, that's what I mean. They're like, ha ha, guys, we don't see this in front of you, idiots. Well, maybe we'll have to try and add a couple of clips into the uh, <laughs> Facebook page for people to see. Uh, I like the you know I mean the presentation when when. Caesar speaks to McDonald in the in the movie and in the comic are both pretty effective. I probably shouldn't like because it's a little over overly dramatic, but I do for some reason really like the very last panel. Like if you look at his hands, it's like he doesn't know what to do. He's he's which it's the the very last uh, panel of this story. Of the whole, of, the whole of, of this particular chapter. It looks like like he, like, like a talking ape. Yeah, like like he might have had something in his hands and dropped it because he was so shocked. 
No, I agree with you. It's a little overdramatic, like someone just shivved McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> I, but, um, and yet I like it despite that. <laughs> um, that's a really creepy depiction of, of Caesar in that final panel. I like it, though. It works. What's weird about it, though, is it looks like a totally different ape than the one in the panel right next to it. And that's what we are talking yeah. about, about consistency. Because the one on the left looks like a Roddy McDowell ape. The one on the right looks like what... You know what Taylor having a nightmare of a Roddy McDowell ape. So um, his his muzzle is completely different. His muzzle yeah. is more droopy and elongated in that final but panel. The way so yeah, it is the way he's drawn in the final panel. His eyes, uh, like yes. the way I yeah, always see very- Caesar is he is an absolute innocent. He's the Messiah. He's you know he's doing what he has to do kind of thing. But that panel says to me, I had my back against the wall. I had to talk with this guy, and I'm doing what I need to do. Kind of like he's, he's I don't know, like the, the way I'm reading into that picture, like he's analyzing everything right at that moment. He's not just an innocent who's going along for the ride. And keep in mind that, I mean, it's, you know, because of the way that they soften the end and then the way that they wrote uh, Battle, we tend to think of um, Caesar as a messiah and a kindly person, but what he really is uh, is a very angry person uh, in the way the movie originally ends. He's angry, he's violent, and he's murderous. And uh, that gets lost because of the tacked-on ending that they threw in here. It's effective. That I mean, the panel is weird because it's sitting right next to a panel where he doesn't look like that at all, but it's effective in drawing that out, I think. Anything more on this one before we move on to chapter five? Uh, yeah, chapter five. Nope. Okay, so chapter five was in uh, issue number 20, and I have to just page through quickly to get to the beginning of it. And it opens up once again with him revealing himself to McDonald, brings us through them uh, thinking that they uh, that they execute him uh and we get to the point where the revolution is beginning and uh i i wish that once again i wish that the movie had this architecture because the building is you know in in the movie it's, it's just a bunch of hallways but i really like this uh the idea that they're going round uh these round floors looking for him it it, it it gives an almost surreal uh, look to the search. See, now there's almost times where I'm just too quickly to accept a uh, an explanation from someone because I, I like to be kind of a trusting soul. Uh, and I think it's uh, the documentary that they made in the 90s uh, that Roddy McDowell narrates. and Was it Behind the Planet of the Apes? Uh, right. And he to- I, I, yeah. I think it was there where he talks about the fact that they wanted the set to look fu- futuristic. So they had this mall that was under construction and they, they did it and it, it really had a futuristic look. And, you know, being the tool that I am, I sit there saying, yeah, yeah, it looks futuristic. <laughs> and then you guys pointed out over and yeah, over again. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But I want to think it's futuristic looking. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, when you distance yourself from that special and just watch it, you go, Okay, there are some there are some cool looking areas in it, but largely, it's a big open plaza and then some hallways. <laughs> it's a mall. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. You're, right. you're totally on the money, but I am so susceptible to suggestion that, that when Rodney McDowell said that, I was like, yeah, okay, it looks futuristic. <laughs> I'm the same way, by the way. I am the same way. I, I 
for years bought into Gene Roddenberry's wagon train to the stars, even though that's clearly not Star Trek is not wagon train, but because it was being said, I bought into it. So I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> I can totally see that also. Now, my um, biggest criticism of this entire adaptation uh, happens in this chapter. So I want to know, how did Caesar survive electrocution? Because in the movie, as he keeps getting juiced and everything, and, and the guy's about to administer the lethal dose of, of electricity to, to finally finish him off, um mcdonald cuts the power and caesar looks over at the gauge and realizes as the guy turns the switch that oh wait a minute there's no power so he fakes his own death in this you have none of that you have mcdonald in the panels above looking like he's about to throw the switch we never actually see actually i'm gonna gonna stop you there it's it's not mcdonald at all that is that is oj simpson on those uh (laughs) <laughs> yes it is yes. But, <laughs> that's the juice the juice is about to cut the juice yeah exactly <laughs> no um, you're right it's not if someone hasn't seen the movie they wouldn't they wouldn't know the context because it's very ambiguous yeah. he says he says but out of all these circus which one will do the trick but it's not clear what he did because in the movie right. you get the sense that caesar has this moment where nothing's happening and then he goes Oh, okay. Ow, 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 ow. But right. here it looks right. like he's genuinely being electrocuted. So, right. so it's the, not the like, why is he still being electrocuted? Yeah. In, in, in the fact, the artwork is drawn. The device is still. I'm sorry, the, the, the I'm artwork sorry, is drawn where it almost looks like there's the electric lines around him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Like, like if someone hasn't seen the movie, they might not understand that what really happened. Because it actually, if you look, he's going, which one, which, and then you see electrical lines like, holy shit, he failed to save yeah, them. No, this, like, it's exactly, in, in this like, instance, the art fails. Opposite. The story, yeah, excuse yeah. me, the storytelling fails. The, yeah. the, the doctor who's operating the machine is looking right at the power indicator. The power indicator moves up when he says maximum power. So you see yeah. the needle peg at maximum. The next panel is Caesar getting electrocuted, and as you say, Paul, you've got the electrical lines all around him, and then when the doctor says, we can cut the power now, you see the needle go back to zero. Well, so I'm, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna give them the one, power's operating. I'm going to give them one little headcanon point there, and I'm going to say when he says we can cut the power, the needle is already down. That's the only thing that's giving you any indication – that that maybe it didn't happen, and and that's that's not good storytelling. This this sequence needed at least three more panels no, to no, show to, to show uh, McDonald pulling one of the switches, and then to have at least two yeah. panels where they put the power up, and 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 Caesar realizes that there's no power. You <coughs> you needed to have that, and and they they yeah. failed on that. It's the only thing that works because even if you want to say. Well, you know, it wasn't enough to kill him, and, and Caesar's smart enough to fake it. The the very next line of dialogue is, I held it for ten seconds, and it only makes three. So the guy administered more than he needed to kill him. So right. there's really no logical explanation, unfortunately, 
in this particular adaptation for how the hell he survived it. And, and that really bugged me because that's, that's a critical part of the story. And even, yeah, it's one of those things where you almost have to have seen the movie to be able to follow this sequence at all. Even in, even right. in the movie that they don't like check his pulse to see that he's dead is, is ludicrous that, actually. Yeah. That's Hollywood. I'm sorry. That's Hollywood, as they say. You, you, you'd probably you, you <laughs> needed you needed to have the guy who was doing the uh, the switch on the electrocution to be in on it. You know, somehow McDonald should have been the one who was doing it, and then you know he, he doesn't actually do it, and Caesar knows that he's not going to do it. He fakes it so that somebody watching thinks he's dead. Then McDonald goes over and checks like with a, a stethoscope and says, "Yes, he's dead." You do that now; yeah, it's now it's believable. Pulls the Dr. Yep. McCoy. Yeah, yeah, that would work. Now, in the film, I, I can't remember, does Caesar electrocute the doctor that was zapping him in the film? I thought he just knocked him out or, or maybe even killed him with his bare hands, but I don't remember him actually throwing him on the table and zapping him, does he? I have no memory of that. Rich? Oh, my goodness. He does. Yeah, he does I'm in pretty, this, and I kind of, I kind of liked it. It's brutal, but but, but again, it, it shows it shows it Caesar yeah. to have a harder edge, uh, right, you know, yeah. which is something that the movies, you know, ultimately shied away from. Yeah, exactly. You also notice too is that the, the adaptation really glossed over something, <clears throat> and I get why they did because they all, it's probably the same reason they removed C, uh, Lisa, but it glossed over the fact that Caesar spent weeks in a breeding annex. And you, we talked about this last time. I always found it fascinating that there are probably, by the time of Zero and Cornelius's time, thousands of descendants of Caesar uh, because if he spent all this time breeding. That means by the time of battle even, there were probably a whole lot of illegitimate Caesar kids. The, the, so it um it it, it glosses over it because it shows the breeding annex and it doesn't really show that scene where Caesar's got that look on his face like I'm about to get laid and it, it and it removes Lisa because in the context of a comic being shown to kids I think they were just t saying let's just remove sex completely from this right. Because I yeah. guess it didn't really matter in the course of a, a story about about rebellion anyway, especially because they were not I, I showing think, her original ending. I, I think that? the the sequence where they call him from the other apes to go there is in there, but yeah, it doesn't show yeah. the actual like, you know, for lack of a better term, the the love making scene. It does not show that. It just shows exactly. him like being being t taken there and then i don't think there's there's even mention of it again after that point yeah. i i i wonder if they included that only because well by this point i think all the movies were out so they knew where the story was going but yeah my, my original thought was maybe they thought that would be where they went with a sequel or something i've always wondered in the film itself if that was in there because they didn't know where the story was going to go. So they were leaving themselves somewhere for the story to go like son of Caesar type of thing. You know what I mean? It could be and, uh, the same person. Paul Dane wrote the four sequels, so it's possible. He may have had something in mind, so right. That he just didn't pursue. I don't, I'm not aware of any early 
early drafts of battle that show illegitimate kids. I don't I don't think there were any. So that might have been something he thought he'd pursue and then never did because that you know I, I don't think that they were intending to end it at five, but the studio chose to. The uh, there's this this the rebellion in eight management is also pretty brutal. Surprisingly, for a magazine that will be read by kids for in, the, in, the, in the 70s, you know, with the apes using um, flamethrowers to torch people and so forth. It's surprising that that made it in here, and I like that it did. Well, I, I think those these magazines were meant for an older audience, though. I don't think they were meant for young kids. I think they were shooting... You know, realistically, I don't think they were shooting for people in their 50s, uh, but I think they were shooting for, you know, late teens, mid-teens. I, I agree with you, yeah. See, I, I wondered about that because I was always under the impression that the magazines, you know, Marvel's black and white magazines, you know, the, the whole line of them were intended for... You know, more mature audience. Well, that's so what that's I mean by why, late teens. Maybe college some, age. You know, I, right. But yeah, I mean, I know some of them had, you know, bare breasted women and stuff like that. And sometimes, I don't remember really the language being all that much more, but, you know, they would be more violent. They would actually show blood and things like that. This, to me, almost seems to be kind of hedging its bets. It's like somewhere in the middle because I agree with you. The, the rebellion is pretty brutal in parts, but then it's also at the same time, um, it pulls back on some sequences that are very brutal in the film. So it's a strange mix of that. And then I, I think leaving out bastards from lousy human bastards, that one really puzzled me because I'm like, well, th this is your magazine for that sort of thing. So why are you not doing that? And I, I and I think you're right. I think it's it, it you know it is intended for an older audience, but at the same rate, recognizing the popularity of apes, especially with with younger people and everything, I, I think they were shooting for somewhere in the middle as opposed to truly, you know, that more mature audience that they would get with like Savage Sword of Conan or something like that. Well, if you read know, the articles in the magazine, the articles and the ads, it's clear that they were aware that they had young kids reading the magazine, too, because there are articles right. about the rodeo and the rodeo is aimed at little kids. Uh, so it's things right. like that, you know, like <laughs> that. It's uh, it's it. They were trying to they, they were being I mean, they were clearly including stuff that was a little more mature. I mean, there's there's bestiality and terror on the planet of the apes, for example. Um, but an attempted rape. Uh, you know, hey kids, comics. Um, but there's a. <laughs> but they were they were they had to be aware that they had younger audiences. If you look at some of the articles, because the uh, they're written very. Some of them are written very intelligently, but some of them are written very much in a little kids fans not little kids, but in a in a, in a, a young audience fanzine type of manner. But I, I think that that was because they were trying to appeal to everybody. It is interesting, though, that if they were aware that they had young kids reading, some of the scenes in here surprise me. But it's it's arbitrary choices, because like you say, they remove any implications of the breeding annex and the word bastards, but they show people being torched in the face. <laughs> so, you know, it, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So 
the <laughs> final sex bad setting people on fire. Okay, I, I think we yeah, exactly. I mean, but let's be honest that that what you just said is pretty accurate in American culture. That's not far off of how we tend to view things. <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> You know, hey, man, shot in the face. I, I, come here, kid, watch this. Oh, my God, there's a boob. Run. You know, like that's kind of the American mentality. So, Right. If, if we go on to yeah, the so. uh, to the last part of this story, I think the cover is clearly meant to entice the audience you're talking about because uh, yeah, they, exactly. ha- they have, you know, the, 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 uh, <laughs> The, the, the war is fully underway and there's a gorilla front and center who looks extremely threatening and in his arms he's holding little Annie Fanny. See, it's funny <laughs> you say that because I was just about to say I wasn't aware Marilyn Monroe had shown up in the film. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it, it is funny, too, because it looks like they've set the entire city on fire. Like, this is they, – they've really taken the rebellion to full uh, – extent on this cover it is an, an, an inaccurate cover but i've always been fond of it as weird as it is uh that, that that crazed look on that gorilla's face is just terrifying more so than in the in the interior pages. more so than any gorilla's face i saw in any of the movies that is the scariest gorilla That's face it. i've seen <laughs> yep exactly uh, Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the reprints that you worked on, didn't they use the cover to 18 for that particular volume? Uh, I'd have to, let me see. I will take a look right now. Um, because I don't recall offhand what the, uh, let me see. All right, so. Do, do, do. I don't own them, but I've seen them, and it it seems to me like that that cover looks really familiar to me from from something well, that was I just, in a on, on, on the Facebook uh, thing. I just sent you a link to a, a gallery that has the four covers. Oh, okay. Okay. The, the yeah. cover on, on um, issue eighteen looks to me like it's a doctored up photograph. Uh, yeah, it looks like I don't. I'm not. I don't. Offhand, I don't think that. I have to remember now which one was the cover of eighteen. Hold on, let me see. It, it shows a gorilla in chains battling with the police. Uh, uh, okay, yeah, that one's definitely not the uh, not one of the four covers that, that Boom used. Um, b- oh. Because Boom, yeah. Do you, do you see them in that gallery there? Uh, I'm waiting for it to open right? here. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, because um, oh, actually no, it is. That is it. You're right. Well spotted. You're right. I stand corrected. I'm just curious why they chose that one, which I like, but I I personally think 21 is like that. That's awesome. I really like that one. I'm just curious why. You know why one over the other type of thing. You know why seventeen instead of or, excuse me eighteen rather. Yeah, I wish I could offer insight. My 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 involvement was on the interior, like uh, making sure they had the materials they needed, writing the introductions, that sort of thing. I um I I saw the uh, the covers the same time everyone else did, so I wish I could give you the uh, some insight into that one. Sorry, <laughs> because I agree with you that twenty one would have been a more effective cover for this. Yeah, for the for the listening audience, the the artist on uh, the cover to twenty one was uh, it's Earl Norum, isn't it? Yeah, Earl Norum, and uh, I mean that guy. 
that guy seldom did a, a you know anything that wasn't just awesome. Uh, I, but I really like this one. It's it's just good, and it has that pulpy feel. Oh, absolutely. To it too. I mean, not only does it does it really look very much like the film and all that, but it also looks you know like an like an old like sci-fi pulp mag type of thing. And I think that just adds to the coolness factor. This has you know just a, a slight flavoring of something like. Uh, like dinosaurs attack or Mars attacks too, and I think that's really cool. But yeah, I just I love that cover. I think that's awesome. If if I was I going I to collect this out of these issues that was originally printed in and use one of the original covers, this was definitely the cover I would go with. I'm looking at the covers again, and I'm realizing uh, from a design standpoint why they wouldn't have gone with 21. If you look at the four covers that were chosen for these four books, they're all d- covers that have artwork where you could slap a gigantic Planet of the Apes logo in the center and not cover the ape faces. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, that, makes, that, that, that makes sense. That was the yeah, no, that does make sense. Yeah. Designed. Has to be a painting where you can slap the logo in the center and not destroy the cover. Ugh. And the problem with 21, 21's got a great cover, but what's at the center? The ape's head and half the girl. You would basically right. have orange at the top and then <laughs> legs at the bottom and a car on the left, and everything else would be covered. <laughs> so sadly, right. I could see why they wouldn't go with this one. I'm actually still friends with the editor, so I'm going to ask him <laughs> because I, I, it's a good. But I have a feeling that that's probably the, that's probably the reason. So the final chapter opens with the rebellion in full, uh, you know, in in, in full uh, rebellion. Swing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know the governor's trying to figure out how to deal with it, and you know, little by little, we we, we do have you know the similar a lot of similar scenes to what we have in the movie with the fire and all of that. Which I got to tell you, when this movie came out, that fire scene was the most exciting thing I had ever seen in my life. See, riveting performance, riveting. I, I, I just remember, you know, as, as kids playing and recreating that scene. Ready, aim, you know, the whole thing. I just, oh, I loved it. And they, they do it really well here as well. Uh, I do like that they show, you know, they, they show, I, I think for the most part, they show fairness on both sides. Because the guy who's leading the command there is holding off on, on shooting. He's, he's trying to, to see if he can reason with them. He's not trying, you know, he doesn't want to just slaughter them. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you get to have sympathy on both sides. It's not, you know, not everybody uh, who's human outside of McDonald is bad. Because, you know, a lot of times... The, or is he just trying to protect profits? Well, maybe. But I like to ascribe a, a nobler uh, motivation for that. I, I, you know what? I love your your optimism here because that, that's great. I, I tend to look at it as he's a fascist guard <laughs> who beats, beats apes on a regular basis. <laughs> so, uh, because his role is to is to keep is to beat down apes, as we've seen with the way that what the guards do earlier in the film. But I actually really I like your idea that this is, you know, one of the guys that's going. Come on, guys, this no more brutality. Let's 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 make this work. Why can't we all just get along? Well, it, it humanizes him a little bit because in the movie, he's just a guy who yells orders and then gets shot in the face. In, in so. the movies, except for McDonald, it's too easy to just side with the apes and hate all the humans. And 
you know that <laughs> believe me i'm i'm not criticizing uh because i've spent a lifetime loving these movies but i do like sometimes when they give a little bit more depth and you know a little bit more even handed because i'm sure not every human was you know horrible to apes uh true Although, keep in mind, everybody you see in this movie, every customer at a store or a restaurant, every person getting a shoe shine, every person working at Apes Management, every person saying do or handing raisins as a tip, all these people are taking part in a slave society. Absolutely, and they don't try to hide that in the writing. They don't try to hide it, and that's what, what makes that movie so powerful for me, is that the idea of... You know, saying slavery is something that should never happen again, and all it took for us to do it again was to lose our pets, and 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 um and the apes became a par- become this parallel for how horribly inhumane pe- slaves were treated, and that, that you know half of a, half of a country embraced this, and uh, so it's hard. I guess it's just hard for me on in that light to view any of the humans in the movie other than Armando. Uh, as anything but a bad person, even Armand, even McDonald, who is a fan favorite, and I love the character, but he is complicit because he works for the fascist who runs all this, but, right? But you know, if if you want to try and be truly real, and if we're going to you know take the parallel to the Civil War, uh, I guarantee you there were people on the North who, in the North, who when they took their position, were saying. What? You're going to take away my slave? What? <laughs> you know, and, and 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 didn't buy into that that way of thinking. And I guarantee you, there's people in the South who were nice to their slaves and said, "Oh, we're going to set them free. Yeah, let's set them free." But you know, they were in the minority on their side in each group. But I'm sure there were people who had dissenting opinions. I can't imagine that everybody from the North was was pro freedom and everybody from the South was pro slavery. That just makes no sense to it me is at all. True that there were people- North who felt that uh, who 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 disliked the abolitionists. That is true. So yeah. Do we know enough about McDonald to know whether or not he was already actively working to kind of subvert Breck before Caesar came along, or or did he seem like he kind of turned once Caesar came along? See, I, I, I've always been a little. I don't know if, about if Rich that. maybe has some sort of insight as to any other story that delves into that. But as far as the way they show him here, I think you could easily believe that although he was working for the government, he was in there trying to change their way of looking at things. Right. That's the way to... I've always kind of interpreted. In him. which case, you don't necessarily. You know, uh, paint him with the same broad brush you do everybody else who was pro-ape slavery. Totally agreed. Which is why I said before, even him, he's complicit. But like, I don't, I do not see him like Culp or or, or Breck. Definitely not. Um, I, there's there's remarkably little established about McDonald before this movie. Um, you know, we, we you know we we get some scenes in in um. Uh, quest for Planet of the Apes of McDonald as a person, uh, which is one of the Marvel stories, um, and so forth. But there's and, and, and he's in uh, Revolution on the Planet of the Apes, but but all of, but that's after this movie, and uh, and all all of uh, pretty much the only thing established about him really is that he has a brother, 
It's it's about so it's hard to say. My 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 thinking on this is that he is a person who got a job in a in a in, in the government and then the government went fascist. That's kind of how I tend to see it. And he was caught rising up in the ranks of this new governor who is this horrible person and and it, he he ends up being a good person caught in a bad situation who has is left with the, the moral dilemma of sticking around and um and trying to fix it or leaving did we did we ever get any type of backstory as to what happened to him between this movie and the next movie yeah he died it's uh, it, it was shown in Revolution on the Planet of the Apes, which was a Mr. Comic story. Um, and uh, we did the Mr. Comic story, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, it was good. It, it was very good. He ended up. It it, it it shows him dying not long after this movie, but uh, yeah. So so yeah. So he doesn't survive much longer beyond this, unfortunately. Uh, and um, and by the time that we get to. Uh, you know, by the by the time we get to um, battle, he has known his brother. For, Caesar has known his brother for a, for a long see, time. See, I, I would like to see a story where they show him, you know, basically picking up where he left off at the end of this movie and working as a peacemaker between the two sides, trying to help to develop a, a society where they can live together and maybe at some point making a very noble sacrifice to that end. And that's why he dies. Um I, I think you know that that seems to be a real easy story to to write for somebody who's got more talent than me. As I remember, he was killed by Culp. If I'm, it was either Culp or Alma. It's it's it, because in Return in um, almost the Return of the Jedi, in uh, in Revolution on the Planet of the Apes, um, the uh, the the people who become the mutants in in uh, in battle are part of a commando team sent to take out Caesar and, um, and McDonald ends up getting killed. Okay. So, I mean, he does, it sounds like he does have a noble death. I'm going to have to read that again. I thought we did. I thought it's we did it already, but I don't remember that. So. We did. Yeah. It's just been, it's been quite a few, yeah, I don't remember it. Either. It's been quite a few years yeah. since we did our planet of the apes month. And the more we talk, the more inclined I am to do another planet of the apes month. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, Rich, any chance you're going to be available four weeks in a row sometime in the not-too-distant future? Yes. <laughs> I would be happy to do another Planet of the Apes month. Later. Okay, so we're going, to, we're going to pencil that in sometime not too long from now. Uh, but in the meanwhile, uh, do we have anything else to add on this particular adaptation before we sign off of it? Yeah, yeah, a couple of things. Please go. I, I wanted to, to piggyback on what Rich said about I do get a better feel – in this adaptation that not all the humans are bad, or at least not, you know, flat out evil and rotten to the core that, that there are shades. And I don't get that from the movie. My, my perception walking away from the movie every time is that other than Armando and McDonald, that all the humans are a bunch of assholes and really deserve what happens to them because everybody that you see, that's a human in the movie to my quick recollection is just they're deplorable the way they they deal with the apes you know they snap at them they're rude to them we see the lady that you know orders a book and the and the ape does her best to bring the book back and then the woman doesn't thank her anything and scalds her and you know it's so yeah, we see that funny. a lot where they're just dismissed they're they're poorly yeah. treated and 
And I, I think the movie's doing that because that, you know, it, it's that movie structure. So they're really, you know, emphasizing that point. And I like that this this is a little more subtle in that respect, because I, I agree with you. I, I also interpreted the uh, the commander of the, you know, of the security forces as, uh, you know, trying to kind of play peacemaker, you know, that he didn't want to just instantly follow his order to just mow them all down. He was, he was trying to find, you know, that that middle ground type of at least that's how I interpreted it. I like the interpretation, so I'll adapt it. There you go. And I, 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 I have to say I like that this story ends with the original ending. Yes, very and, and much not so. the but now is the time to put down all weapons. Uh, well, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, and that's yeah, that's why I like about this one is that it's actually somewhere between them because um, we don't get the conciliatory ending with you know almost like the apology like well but we're not going to do it you know we don't get Lisa speaking and all that but at the same rate. Um, we don't get the brutal ending either because the gorillas don't pound Breck into paste. So we're somewhere well, I think that's in between. Basically, it kind of ends with... <laughs> I, I, the way I read this, that's you, it's just going to happen off screen. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though. I wonder. As, as you're saying that, I'm looking at that last page, and without them raising up their rifles, the line, and that day humans is upon you now to me, would seem to imply he's going to enslave them. See, the way I read it is the the, the right. gorillas aren't sure what he wants to do, and they're waiting to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, that day, humans, and they're like, yes, yes, yes. This is upon you now. And that's when the gorillas, that's, 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 that's when they kill him. <laughs> that's because the gorillas, yeah. uh, they, they've seen both versions of the movie, and they don't know which one they're in. <laughs> Well, they're dumb gorillas. What do you expect? In the, in the original theatrical release, isn't it right after that line is when he starts into the conciliatory yes. speech, yes. right? Yeah. Which yeah. is why right yeah. after this yeah. line we suddenly get a close-up on the eyeballs because they, the mouth movements don't match. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, you know, and, and uh, I don't even remember what we said when we did the Is It Yours, because even though these are going to come out on the same weekend, we recorded them months apart. Uh, I like both versions. I really do. Look, I, I'm easy to please with Planet of the Apes. I, I have watched the Burton film numerous times. I've watched the cartoon numerous times. Neither one of them will I say is great, but I can watch any of the nine movies I have to probably had some fireball before I watch the Burton movie, but I can watch any of the nine movies and uh, and find something to like about them. So I, because I'm easy to please. Well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm I gonna go on that the, same the, limb with you, and I'm gonna say, and I know Scott will not necessarily forgive me for this, but even bad things when they're in Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, James Bond. There, I'm, I, I can watch any of them. It doesn't matter, even the bad ones. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I mean, you, I know you and I have talked about James Bond. It's like, okay, yeah, for, for every Casino Royale, for for every Golden Eye, for every uh, um, um, Goldfinger, 
there's a die another day and a moonraker and you just have to go ah okay uh, but you know what? I can still enjoy them because they are, in fact, James Bond movies. And whatever flaws they have, they also have some really good stuff in them. And that's kind of how I view uh, Planet of the Apes and Star Trek. Because for every best of both worlds in Star Trek, there's also an alternative factor and, and the children's show lead, which are just embarrassingly bad. But it doesn't mean I won't watch them. And, and I point that out because when it comes to... Uh, Conquest, I think that the extended cut is far superior. But when I marathon them, I watch Conquest, and then I plug in <laughs> the theatrical version. I, I should say I watch the extended cut, and then I always watch the end of the theatrical version just so I have the complete story. And I know that that's a weird thing to do, but the reason I do that is because Battle is based on the kindlier, gentler Caesar. And if you don't have that tacked-on stupid-ass ending... Battle makes a lot less sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you totally. Yeah. So, uh, I think you know we we should do our back to the bins ratings on this overall story. I, I don't think we should do the covers only because they're so uh, varied and they're not all they're not all Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I mean, you can choose choose your own poison on that if you want to rate them. That's fine. But uh, I'm gonna say the. The artwork in this is really where it stands or falls. Uh, and while it is inconsistent and while it does have a lot of faces that we've kind of had fun with, uh, I do think it's, for the most part, very solid. I think the storytelling, for the most part, is very solid. The only part that really fell apart, as far as I'm concerned, is the one that we kind of dissected where, uh, where they are faux-electrocuting Caesar and they don't really... The artwork doesn't really let you follow exactly how that happened, nor does the dialogue. Uh, so I can't say it's a perfect one story, and especially, like I said, we made fun of some of the faces as well. But I think it's like a really, really solid B to the point where I'm going to say with it being such a, you know, a, a, a monumental effort over six issues, I'm going to even give it a B plus. Uh, scripting wise i think some of we didn't really uh focus on it but i think some of the dialogue is a little hammy uh and some of sometimes there's a little bit you know hey let's exposit this scene uh so there's a little bit of that I'm, so i'm just i'm gonna knock that down to the just regular b instead of a b plus and i'm gonna say solid adaptation i really enjoyed uh, going through it again for the purposes of of doing the show, and I enjoyed breaking it down with you guys very much. Same here. Any? Uh, um, you want to give your your ratings? I'll, I'll go ahead. Yeah. Um. I mean, just rating the whole thing as a whole, as opposed to individual chapters. I, I think the art does improve. Um, over time, I mean, I think it starts very well, but I think it definitely gets better as the adaptation goes along. Um, I think it's it's very well illustrated. It is inconsistent, as we pointed out several times. Um, I think generally that inconsistency falls with um, the apes, to where sometimes they're very ape-like as modern-day apes look, and then other times they are very much the evolved movie apes a la like the first three movies um and so that that's a little weird and that's a little jarring in, in places and um 
it's often hard to tell one species. Well, it's hard to tell chimpanzees from gorillas in a lot of this. Yes. Uh, But that said, I really like the art. And, and and I think one of the reasons it it really stands out to me is because again, this is an artist that that, um, I'm typically, you know, really kind of hot and cold and usually more cold on. Um, so this stands out to me that much more that, okay, you know, this, this is something by this artist that I'm really digging, you know, that's really working for me. And I like it. I like, uh, the heavy inks and, you know, the, the starkness of it and all of that. I think it works really well for the type of tale that this is. Um, you know, would I like this, you know, on something that's supposed to be bright and airy and all? No, it totally wouldn't work for me. Um, whenever I've seen him do uh, mainstream superhero stuff like he did, um, I remember at least like one chapter of America versus the Justice Society. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You know, his art style is not made for, you know, bright, flashy superheroes. You know, this is a, a, a like I always described his art style as greasy. You know, it, it looks, you know, it has like that that Warren like creepy type of vibe to it. So it just doesn't work for that sort of thing, but it works here because uh, that's the type of story this is, you know, it's, it's dark, it's moody and it, you know, it has a real downbeat ending to it, you know, where basically the world of man collapses, you know, and, and, and dies at the end of the story. So it works really well for that, you know, for a, for a basically an apocalyptic story. And so, so I like it and I think it works really well. Um, so art wise, uh, yeah, I think I'd go. Uh, I think I'd go a solid B on it. I, I really like this quite a bit. I really enjoy it, and I and again, I like that kind of alternate universe take on things, where it's a familiar story, um, but looks different than the other pre- presentation we've seen of it. I like that. I don't want my comics adaptations to just be a photo referencing of the movie, you know. Um, especially in these days when you can just, you know, watch everything streaming or on a, on a disc or whatever. Um, but even back then, you know, before we had that ready availability, I, I still liked, you know, seeing the artist rendition as opposed to him just drawing the movie. Uh, and this is one of the better ones, in my opinion, because it, it really broadens the scope beyond the, the limited budget of the film. And I think it adds a hell of a lot to the story. Um, and then story-wise, uh, I think it's a really solid adaptation. Um, I, I think it, it does lack a few things that the movie has, but overall, I, I think its real strength is that it adds things that the movie doesn't have. Um, there are several scenes in here that, that are not in the film, particularly the opener. Um, but also, there's there's just a few little things of dialogue, little snippets here and there, not really like whole scenes or anything, but just little pieces of dialogue that fill in the gutters nicely and give ad- added motivation or explanation that I feel in some instances the, the movie really could have benefited from. And I, I pointed the one out where I felt like Armando really made an effort to kind of kind of brief or, or prepare Caesar for what was going to happen or what he was going to see when they went into the city for the first time that I've always felt was lacking from the film. And there's, there's several other instances like that. I didn't point them all out, but there, there's several of them in here. Um, 
And then I think the strongest thing of all is I, I like the kind of blended ending because it ends with the apes triumph ending without being the brutal ending. And it also, you know, it, it omits, you know, omits the thing with, with Lisa and all. What's funny though, is I, I looked ahead just a little bit in the apes at right after this, before the next adaptation, which would be battle. There's a, I think it's just all in one issue, but there's a, a two part story um, quest for the Planet of the Apes, I think it was called, which was a bridging story between the end of Conquest and the beginning of Battle. And not only is Breck in that story, so he clearly survives this, which he doesn't in the unrated or the extended version of the film, you know, the non-theatrical version of the film, um, but also right from the first page, Lisa is a huge part of the story and she's almost completely expunged from the, from this adaptation. So I, I found that really funny. So if you are following this strictly by the printed page and you didn't see the movies or didn't have access to the movies, you might be a little bit lost between the chapters. And I, I found that kind of uh, funny as well. So, but you know, that would, I'm wondering who that would fall on, you know, the the removal, you know, the practical remover of Lisa, because she is in there in the very beginning when we first meet her, you know, in the same scene as in the film. But then beyond that, I don't think she's in it again at all. So I don't know who that falls on. Is that on the writer? Is that on the editor? Is that, you know, whose decision was that? But it's just funny that she's almost completely removed from this than one of the central characters of the very next chapter. So that, that was just really weird. She just, you know, so somebody reading this in the comic form, it would really seem like she just comes, comes out of left field, I would think. So, um, but story-wise, as far as, um, you know, the adaptation, I, I think it's really, really solid. I'm going to say, uh, uh, I think I'll go a solid A on it. I, I really like it. I think it makes some, some nice improvements despite some of the things that didn't make it into it from the film. Uh, I think it's a nice balance both ways. So, Overall grade on the whole thing, I'll say an A minus. I, I really like this. I think this is one of the stronger uh, film adaptations that Marvel did. All right, cool. Uh, you guys both did such good dissections there. There's not, I, I don't have much that I could add to that, but uh, I'll, I'll say this. I've always had a love-hate relationship with um, comic book adaptations. I love novelizations because novelizations give you a large canvas. It could be 200 to 400 pages during which you might be doing an hour and a half movie and you can really expand on things. And uh, the, the Conquest novelization is a, is a great example of that. Um, in fact, it, it, it connects to one of the things we were talking about before, which is that not every human is a scumbag. There's one of the one of the minor characters in there is a handler who actually cares about the apes and has a really horribly tragic death, and 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 it's powerful. Um, and uh, so so novelizations I always love reading. When it comes to comic adaptations, the problem I often have with them. Um, even though I read them, uh, but the problem I often have is it's a very difficult line to, to walk because it's drawn. When you're reading a novelization, you, you're picturing the movie. When you're reading a comic, you're picturing what the artist drew and sometimes hearing the exact lines from the movie, which can be jarring, or you're picturing a very 
accurate depiction of what you saw in the film, but you're reading different lines, which can be jarring. So I have a love-hate relationship because I find it fascinating when things in a, in a, in a comic adaptation um, differ. Part of me says, this is really cool. I like the idea of, of, um, of expanding a scene and, and getting context and subtext that wasn't, that wasn't uh, present. Um, but sometimes I'm thrown when it's changed too much. And I say all of this because when you look at something like the Power Records um, adaptations of the Apes films, there's not much point in reading them. They're just basically right. what you saw in the movies, and they're dumbed down, right? So, I mean, I have them, and if I were doing a full-on comic uh, marathon, I'd stick them in there just because. But there's not much point in reading it. And the same thing goes with the um, Gold Key adaptation of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. It's well-drawn, but it's basically just a truncated version of the movie. So I say all this because I really like Marvel's version of Conquest. Because it, even though there's some, even though there is some uh, inconsistency, <laughs> there's a lot of inconsistency. The fact that Breck has like eight different faces comes to mind. The fact that uh, the orangutans go from looking like chimpanzees to gorillas to specifically Dr. Zayas. Um, <laughs> or the fact that that you know Caesar seems to have a a, a pretty um, what's a, a pretty moldable face. <laughs> um, so, so, so putting that aside, though, I think this is a pretty powerfully drawn and powerfully um, written adaptation that takes some pretty disturbing subject matter and distills it in such a way that without seeing, without seeing any movement, you get a sense of movement. And without seeing um, the actu actual actors' likenesses in many cases you get to feel like you're watching the film. It's, it, it's, it's impressive. And I think that, that, uh, overall, um, it, it might be my favorite of the adaptations because it's different. Now the next one battle takes us to a whole new level. I mean, it's wildly different and I really love it for that reason, but it's just so wildly different that, it's it's like it's a different story at times. Like Caesar, you know, going bald from radiation. Like it's a very very different story. Um, but this one I think is well done, and I, I I give high marks to to Alcala for some for at times several pages of storytelling with no dialogue, and I was totally able to follow it. As you guys pointed out, the one area that really falters is the electrocution scene because if you have not watched the movie, it really seems like McDonald uh, really basically just totally screwed up any attempt to save Caesar because he couldn't find the switch, and then Caesar died and came <laughs> back. As, you know, he comes back as a zombie ape, basically. Like that, like that, <laughs> the whole context of the ape uh, of the scene is thrown by the fact that McDonald just stands around going, "Which one? Which one?" And, and uh, so that's the one scene that falters. That and Culp kind of looking like Newman. I just can't <laughs> take him seriously. <laughs> but those are really the only two things in the in there where I go, yeah, it didn't work for me. It's an alternate interpretation of the movie, but I give it an A. All right, good deal. All right, so that's our lengthy review of this story. Uh, <laughs> Rich, thanks for making the time to come on with us. I really appreciate it, as as that's always. And yeah, we always enjoy talking to you uh, and and your encyclopedia of knowledge brain uh, 
But uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Oh, I literally time. wrote an encyclopedia. So yeah, I, I think I have it on my <laughs> shelf right behind me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next week when we'll do something else. But I think we're going to come back and do Planet of the Apes month. So. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. So, oh, so what is this? Back to the bins? Where are we? We are back to the bins. We are back to the bins. Bum, 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 bum. No, that doesn't work, does it? Not really. Wait, we are binsers. Bum, 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 bum. Like we are farmers. I, I did figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make sure that you, you know, you knew what I was talking about. But the bum, 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 bum doesn't go well, does it? Goes wonderfully. Yeah. Well, then that's it. That's our new theme. Yeah. You just, you know. We are binsers. Bum, 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 bum. That will be a uh, a bumper. <laughs> no, really? It's all I have is a big giant bumper for you. Bumper boy. <laughs> <laughs>